Our topic, <clears throat> the Christian family as the basis of Christian civilization, excuse me, the biblical family as the basis of Christian civilization, and our text will be one Genesis one twenty six to 28, and uh, this will be at least a two-parter, maybe a three-parter, and I'll read the text in a moment. The family is the most basic institution on planet Earth. It was set up by God before both the church and the state, and has been given the crucial task of godly dominion in this world. Now, we'll talk about the church later. The church has a critical role. You know, the, the, the gospel has to go forth and everything. <clears throat> After the fall, the family is the nursery for both the church and the state. And as the family goes in a certain direction, the church and the state will follow. You know, families elect the elders. Families elect pastors. You complain about the church being corrupt and violating the covenants? Well, that's what people will vote for. <clears throat> Therefore, a biblical study of the origin, meaning, and purpose of families is crucial for a solid, well-rounded Christian world and life view. Modern secular humanists understand the importance of the family, and consequently have not only redefined what a family is, but have done almost uh, everything they can to control the education of children. And we'll look at that. We won't get to that today. But uh, you study Stalin, you study Hitler, you study the Marxists, you study the Socialists, you study modern Democrats, and they want to completely control the education of children and mold them in their image. Because whoever controls the children controls the future. They want children to look for the state for meaning and salvation, not Jesus Christ and the Bible. They hate the Bible. <clears throat> when I was very young, when I was first a professing Christian, when I was like I was only eighteen, and I, I could sneak into high schools and pass out tracts and stuff, and I'd get called in the office, and and uh, they threatened to call the cops on me and everything, and I kept a copy of the Constitution on me and everything. But they're extremely opposed to the gospel and the Bible because. Man is their God, and that's their authority. Given the current situation, let us examine the biblical teaching regards God's design for families. So we're going to, you know, what is the purpose of the family? God's original intended purpose. We're going to look at that quite exhaustively. Well, let's look at the first family and the dominion mandate, and that'll take up today. And here's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruit, said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I'm going to read one more here. Uh, this is going to be Genesis 2, 20 to 25, because they're related. You'll see in a moment. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Some translations will say suitable. 
And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken for man, he made into a woman. And he brought the woman to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. Literally, from the womb of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The account of the creation of Adam and Eve <clears throat> and the dominion mandate is essential, for it sets forth how man came to be, why marriage was ordained by God, and the purpose of families. The teachings we find in the creation narrative are foundational and serve as the paradigm for the doctrine of the family throughout Scripture. <clears throat> Paul will refer to it. Jesus will refer to it. It's the paradigm. There are a number of things that we need to learn from these verses. First, number one, created in God's image. The account reveals something very important about man, about human nature. Man was created in the image and likeness of God. Now, while the whole creation, as we know from Romans 1, reveals to us the attributes, the perfections of God, only man is the image of God. Adam, man, Eve, woman, were the last creatures created by God and are the head and crown of the whole creation. The basic phrase, the image of God, is found only four times in the whole Old Testament. Genesis 1, 26-27. Excuse me, i got to get my glasses. Genesis 1, 26-27. Twice. 9, 6. Where capital punishment is justified for murder because a murderer has shed innocent blood of man, the image of God. And related to these passages is Genesis 5, 3. Adam, Adam fathered a son after his image. So those are the only times it's used in Scripture. The Hebrew word for image is selem, which the Greek Septuagint normally renders by icon, icon. The word icon. You go to a, uh, the Russians just sent a missile into Odessa and it hit uh Ukrainian Orthodox Church, right in the dome. And so they show the news people in there, and there's icons everywhere. Some scholars believe that the image and likeness are essentially synonyms, while others think that likeness clarifies image so that no one thinks that man is an exact image of God. So they're different views. In any case, while Jesus is the image in a divine manner, all human beings are mere creatures and can only mirror God in a finite manner. And this is, of course, before sin. There's no sin. Although Scripture says little about this image, what this image means. Reformed theologians have left us with a solid, defendable interpretation based on the broad context of Scripture. 
And there's different, the Lutherans have a view, the Reformed have a view, there's different views. The Roman Catholic view is false and heretical. Uh, but I won't go into detail about that. You can read about that. This image distinguishes man from all other creatures and includes the ability to reason, our spiritual nature, as well as our original knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Some include the intrinsic urge to dominion. Now, because the New Testament speaks of believers being restored in Christ to the original knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, <coughs> Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24, and speaks of fallen men as still possessing the dignity of this image, Genesis 5.1, Acts 17.28, 1 Corinthians 11.7, James 3.9, Reformed theologians make a distinction between the image in the broad sense, which all fallen men still possess, that's why we can't commit murder, to murder a man is to insult God who created man. And the narrow sense, which only applies to real Christians who have been regenerated by the Spirit and justified by Jesus Christ. As Paul talks about, twice, Paul talks about the restoration of true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness through Christ. Because fallen man still has the image in the broader sense, they still have great communication and reasoning abilities as well as the urge to dominion. Even men, total pagans, they find meaning in their work, in their calling, usually. But because they are not saved, they live in darkness and slavery to Satan, their dominion will not glorify God, but will rather seek to glorify man. Man lost none of his essence after the fall and is still man. But because he lost original righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge, his urge to dominion cannot be separated from his sin and rebellion. Okay, people still work. They develop technology. They develop farming and all these things. But they're not interested in serving God. The kingdom, apart, the kingdom of man apart from grace is a kingdom of Satan. And Jesus makes that very clear. He said, you know, to, to those who are rejected him, you are of your father the devil. They're under the covenantal obedience of Satan. As man uh, made as God image bearers of God, who originally had true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, there are a few implications of this doctrine that we need to keep in mind. Number one, as an image bearer, created by God, Man has a limited sovereignty over nature. He must rule only in accordance with divine revelation. He must be receptively reconstructive or think God's thoughts after him. Okay, so we don't have autonomous role. We don't get to go out and just slaughter animals at will and go hunting and kill all the buffalo and do all those crazy things that are satanic. We have to obey God. Two, as sinners saved by grace of the restored but imperfect image, we can only live as God intended through faith in Christ and his infallible word. And we'll see that in detail as we look at how the dominion mandate is going to be applied after the fall. Okay, so that's man, the image of God. Number two, the institution of marriage. God ordained marriage between a man and a woman And this marriage relationship or covenantal union anticipates the dominion mandate. 
Throughout the creation narrative, the divine assessment of the triune God's work has been good or very good. Yet when we come to Genesis 2.18, Yahweh, for our benefit, makes a judgment that Adam's aloneness is not good. He creates this. It's good. He creates this. He creates that. He creates everything. It's very good. And then, he, then oh, by the way, it's not good that man should be alone. It's interesting. Before the creation of the first woman, God makes it clear that man needs a life companion. Before the creation of the woman, the Lord makes Adam aware of his need by giving him the scientific task of naming the animals. In the Hebrew worldview, the name is associated with the nature of the animal. And this is true of humans. They try to associate the name with the nature. You know, the one son was named this because he was hairy, and so forth. <clears throat> Adam is acting as a classifier and is demonstrating his God-given authority over the lower creation. In the animal world, there is male and female birds, male and female lizards, male and female monkeys, male and female apes, male and female cattle, etc. And as Adam is classifying and studying the animals and naming them, he becomes very, very aware that he doesn't have his companion. It would not take long for Adam to understand that he was missing his counterpart. Now, the incredible importance of the woman as man's companion and helper in the book of in the task of dominion is indicated in a few ways. Number one, she is designed by God to be a helper. The word is easer, comparable to the man. The word helper is rich in meaning and in no way signifies inferiority. The verb behind easer is azar which means succor, save from danger, deliver from death. The woman in Genesis 2 delivers or saves the man from his solitude. <clears throat> Matthew Henry writes this, and this is just wonderful, and it's quoted by a number of people. <coughs> a suitable wife is a helpmate and is from the Lord. The relation then is likely to be comfortable when meekness directs and determines the choice and mutual helpfulness is the constant care and endeavor. Now the creation account sets forth the perfect standard for marriage throughout all human history. There's the creation of one man, Adam, and the woman, Eve, who is given to Adam in marriage by God himself. Genesis 2, 18-24. God creates the woman and he takes the woman and presents her to the man in marriage. That's where this tradition comes from of the father walking the woman down the aisle. That comes from the Genesis account. Adam didn't have an earthly father. God was his father in that sense and presented the wife to him. <clears throat> There's not two men and in fact, homosexuality is a criminal offense in God's law, Leviticus 18, 22, 20, verse 13. Of course, the Genesis account, uh, well, the account with Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed primarily for homosexuality. <clears throat> there was also not more than one woman. Polygamy became a custom in the ancient world after the fall and because of the fall, Genesis 4, 23. Although God tolerated and regulated polygamy for a time, 
uh, Exodus 21, 10 and 11, and Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14, God regulated it to protect the secondary wife or wives. Jesus interpreted the creation account as teaching only monogamous heterosexual marriage, Matthew 19.5. In addition, the Apostle Paul always spoke of marriage in terms of one wife and one husband, 1 Corinthians 7.2. And he only mentions polygamy indirectly in order to forbid elders or overseers from having more than one wife, 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.6. Remember, the ancient church, the early church, the apostolic church, had both Jews and Gentiles, and it was still popular among Jews to have, for many to have more than one wife. And they're not going to make them get rid of their wives. They're married. The wife could never get married again if she, in those days. Similarly, the Old Testament high priest could only have one wife who was a virgin. Leviticus 21, 13, and 14. Also, kings were not to multiply wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17. The fact that God established monogamy and then tolerated polygamy for a time was probably an act of mercy on his part, for to get rid of an, any extra wives and children at that time would have been to condemn the wives and children to incredible poverty and perhaps starvation. When missionaries first started working in Africa, polygamy is widespread in Africa. And when they started working in Africa, these missionaries, not knowing better, made they you can only have one wife, get rid of the other wives. That was their policy at first. And then they stopped that policy because, you know, once a woman was married in most cultures, nobody wanted to marry her. She's already been married, she's already got kids, she's not a virgin anymore, nobody wanted her. So she'd be left out to starve to death. So they had to stop that policy. And I think that's the same thing we find with God regulating it in the Old Testament. The polygamous family was still a family, but it was not the biblical ideal. The post-apostolic church eliminated polygamy, and that is why it is not found in Western nations except among Mormons, a cult, and Muslims, a cult. Now, if Muslims do it in America, they keep it secret, and if Mormons do it in America, they try to keep it secret. But it's against the law, and that comes from Western civilization. That comes from the influence of the church upon the West. The Jews did not abandon polygamy in Europe in, I think it's like the 13th century or 11th century. It took a few centuries for it to get out of the Christian church, and then it took many centuries. And they were forced to get rid of it by Christians. <clears throat> the phrase matching him means literally like opposite him like opposite him. It's only found here in the whole Bible. It emphasizes the idea of complementarity. The implication is that the husband and wife together are greater than the sum of the parts. The assistance is comprehensive and applies spiritually, emotionally, and in every practical way, not just daily tasks or the procreation of children. Godly dominion requires Christian wives. If a man is to achieve his objectives in life, he needs the help of his mate in every way, from the propagation of his kind down through the scale of his varied activities.
Number two, the woman was created in a unique manner. She was taken out of the side of man himself. The word translated rib, or more proper, is more properly translated side. Sile refers to both bone and flesh. It doesn't refer to a rib. That, that became a tradition. Somebody translated it that way, and it's been translated that way ever since. But a chunk of flesh was taken out of man's side that included bone and flesh. The word makes sense. Um, the word make means literally build. Bina. Excuse me, Bena. It has the extended meaning to make or create. Eve is the only created being in the whole Genesis account that was created from another living being, man. She's the only one. And I forgot, I should have put the Matthew Henry quote in here because the Matthew Henry's got a great quote that's quoted by Spurgeon and everybody else about taking out of his side, so, you know, indicating the partnership and everything. <clears throat> this crucial creative divine act serves a number of distinct purposes. A, it reveals the special unity and covenantal union of marriage. And this is observed in Adam's poetic outburst on seeing his beautiful wife. Genesis 2.23, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. God, through this special creative act, reveals a covenantal union, a union of purpose, and, of course, the sexual union. See Genesis 2, 24b and 25. And then B. This special creative act points to the purpose and role of the wife in the marriage relationship. And Paul speaks of this issue in 1 Corinthians 11, 7-9. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head... He's talking about a cloth head covering. He's not talking about hair. Since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from the woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. So the submission of wives to their husbands as helpmeets is proved by two facts of history. The woman was formed from the man and not vice versa. You know, Paul, by the way, takes Genesis literally, which he should. It is meant to be taken literally. It literally happened. Eve is created out of Adam's side. The facts of God's creation abide forever and were designed as an object lesson for why marriage exists and how it is supposed to function. In addition, <clears throat> the woman was created for the man or on account of the man, and not he on hers. He wasn't created for her, she was created for him. So Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, informs us that the creation account is literal history, and was conducted in such a way to teach great, abiding, unalterable moral principles. That's why it's very important that we take Scripture seriously, and we don't uh, adopt what liberals think. And then, of course, the creation out of man's side points to the special protecting, nurturing, loving role of the husband for his wife. The Apostle Paul makes this point explicit in Ephesians 5.22-25 and 28. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For 
the husband is the head of the wife is also Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Okay, that's pretty clear. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Let me skip down. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul does not say that the husband must love his wife just as much as he loves his own body, but that he must love his wife because she is his body. Note the difference. Paul looks back to the creation of the woman and also looks at Christ whose body is the church. The marriage covenantal and physical union is not merely one of emotions, interests, and purposes. The biblical marriage relationships makes the two one. Matthew 19, 5-6, where Christ goes back and appeals to Genesis. So it's interesting, whenever you talk about marriage and the role of men and women, both Jesus and Paul, they always go back to the Genesis creation account. And it's designed to complement and advance our full human potential as Christians. And this fact explains why divorce can only be lawful, can only lawfully occur when one party is guilty of adultery or sexual immorality, which breaks the marriage bond, the covenant. Here's what Charles Hodge says. The highest social duty of a husband is to love his wife, and a duty which he cannot neglect without entailing great injury on his own soul as well as misery on his household. The greatest social crime, next to murder, which anyone can commit, is to seduce the affections of a wife from her husband, or of a husband from his wife. And one of the greatest evils which civil authorities can inflict on society is the dissolution of the marriage contract, or covenant, on other than scriptural grounds. He's writing that, I think, what the Ephesians commentary, what is that... Uh, 1856. I came out in 1856. And how prophetic can you be? You say, well, why is the crime rate in black ghettos so incredibly high? It's way higher than in the white suburbs. Why? It has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're black. It has nothing to do with the fact of racism. It's because the families are broken up and when children don't have fathers... Uh, you're asking for great troubles. And when children don't have mothers, you're asking for great troubles. I'll never forget when I first moved to Lansing back around 95 to plant a church. And uh, we were having a house built out in the country, so we had to rent a place. We, were, we got a place, and it was basically in a black neighborhood. And it was, our whole street was divorced black women and children with no fathers. I know that because I went door to door out several hours a day every day in that neighborhood. And it was almost all divorced women. It was basically a, pretty much a black neighborhood. And it was all divorced women and their children. And those children flocked to me like you wouldn't believe. And these children had no authority, fathers in the home. And they cursed and they swore and they got fistfights. And it was a, it's a mess. God created things for a certain way for a reason. And if you ignore that, 
you're going to ask for chaos on society. The heterosexual nuclear family is a God-ordained means of godly dominion by creation, and this creational fact is strongly supported by biblical law and the New Testament canon. I want you to think about this. In the Ten Commandments, four laws deal with the family. Four. Three of them directly. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Exodus 20, 12, 14, 15, and 17. The family is clearly central to the biblical way of life, and it is a family under God which has this centrality. You want to get rid of crime? You want to solve problems in society? You have to heal the family. You can't depend on the state. The state's view is, let the family fall apart, we'll replace the family, we'll give you checks, we'll give you money, and everything will be fine. No, Go to South Chicago. Go to North Philadelphia or West Philadelphia. It's just not safe. And I went to seminary in West Philadelphia back in the in the late seventies, early eighties. And I had to I worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I had, I carried two knives on me, daggers, uh, Gerber Gerber daggers with uh, surgical stainless steel. And nowadays, if I did that, I'd have to carry a gun. It's that dangerous. The many moral case laws that flesh out the Ten Commandments have statutes that regulate sexual behavior for the purpose of protecting the institution of heterosexual marriage. Laws against homosexuality, bestiality, fornication, or premarital sex. A premarital sex was not a death penalty offense like bestiality or homosexuality or adultery, but if you seduced a woman and she lost her virginity, you had to marry her and you had to give her father uh, a dowry equivalent to a whole year's wages, which be in today's money would be like $45,000. That way, if you flaked out, she had some money. If, if a man had to marry a woman he seduced in our culture, uh, fornication would greatly diminish. Incest and abandonment are all designed to protect biblical marriage from perversion and decay. Sexual relations are strictly regulated by God because the, base, the family is basic and foundational to a godly social order. The idea propagated by secular humanists that what two consenting adults decide to do, and this is taught by conservatives as well today, this is taught by, uh, uh, what's that called again, that, that philosophy where everybody's his own little nation, I forgot, but... Uh, is it, they, they believe it's irrelevant to ethics or the integrity of the family and society. That's anti-Christian. That's demonic. Laws are there to protect the family. People are sinners and people need it. If people didn't need it, God wouldn't have given us these laws. Oh, I'm thinking of libertarianism. Libertarianism is basically, well, keep the state out of my business, keep the state out of my taxes, uh, and, and so forth, and property, but you can have any sexual laws you want. If you want to have sex with a monkey, go ahead. If you want to have ten sodomites in your house, go ahead. That's libertarianism. 
totally satanic. It's anti-Christian. To work to undermine and destroy the biblical concept of marriage and the family is an act of contempt and revolution against the biblical law order and the Christian world and life view. And who's the one really advocating this? The Democratic Party. The family is not based on what God says. The family is based on your feelings. So if two guys want to get together, or two women, or, you know, and it's, it's funny, polygamy is still illegal, but polygamy is far less offensive to God than homosexuality and transgendered and all this crazy stuff. Well, let's look briefly as a way of contrast at the secular humanistic view of the family. So before we look at the task of godly dominion, we would benefit from a brief consideration of how secular humanists view the family. This contrast with the biblical view is important because we need to understand why most institutions in America and in the current civil government are strongly opposed to the biblical position. The Christian position today is hated. The religion or philosophy of secular humanism, and yes, it's a religion, it's based on faith, it's not based on science, is, uh, it, it's based on the faith in atheistic naturalism or macroevolutionary theory. They believe that the family is an arbitrary product of social evolution that came about by chance. It is uh, community determined over time and thus is culturally determined. Okay, when men were cavemen and they had to go out and kill giant animals for food, uh, men lorded it over women, but that's not necessary anymore, so we have to get rid of the submission of the wife. In their view, it's not a God-ordained or fixed institution, but an arbitrary, evolving institution. Social views regarding faithfulness and monogamy develop solely, in their view, to protect an undisputed paternity. God wanted to make sure his children got his property when he died. But now that we are enlightened and possess birth control and abortion, monogamy or faithfulness are unimportant and should not be matters that concern a state's civil laws. And this has radically changed. Old Hollywood, the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, and even into part of the 60s. Uh, if an if a actor or actress was a homosexual or a lesbian or they were engaged in, the guy was a whoremonger and engaging in all sorts of perverted behavior, it was kept a secret by the studios. Because in a, in a society that was dominated by the Christian world and life view, uh, those, their careers would be finished. That's not true anymore. You can be a total whoremonger. You can be a raving sodomite. It doesn't matter. Our society accepts all of that now. It's even popular. Generally, they believe that in more recent centuries, the commonly accepted view of marriage and the family was the development of the Christian religion, that is, Western, in Western civilization. But now, they argue, since we are scientific, and we know that the Bible is full of errors and silly myths, the heterosexual monogamous extreme view must be destroyed in favor of the new humanistic laws that honor all human desires. And this is accepted by Fox News. This is accepted by so-called conservatives today. Hey, if you like guys and you're a guy, hey, 
Follow your heart, man. Love, and you see this, the propaganda. Love is what determines relationships. Not God. Not the Bible. Not Christ. Love, whatever that means. We'll talk about that in a minute. We are told that the old Christian view takes away our freedom to think and live however we want to live. Consequently, consequently, they teach that the Christian law order and worldview must be emphatically rejected in favor of an open, evolving, relativistic view of marriage and the family. As the change from marriage as a creation ordinance to an arbitrary, evolving social construct was taking place, there was also a radical change in the Western society's concept of love. Marriage is all about love, right? Well, you think it might be important that we get the definition of love right. The hippies talked about love and peace and happiness and joy and all these things. But they couldn't define love. Their view of love was antinomian. In the biblical worldview, true love is never separated from a commitment and submission to God's law. Love towards Christ is demonstrated by keeping his commandments, John 14, 15. Love towards God is proved by covenant faithfulness, Deuteronomy 27, which also involves a habitual keeping of the moral law. 1 John 2, 4 to 6, 3, 6 to 10, and 24, and 1 John 5, 1 to 3. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. How many kitchens have you seen that at, you know, 13? 1 Corinthians 13. What does that mean? Well, true love does not praise, accept, or rejoice in anything which is not conformed to God's moral law revealed in Scripture. So true love does not involve fornication, adultery, homosexuality, or incest, or any of that stuff that's unlawful. Now, they have feelings, they have emotions, but that's not biblical love. And you know the great story about Tamar. The brother lusted after her. It says he loved her deeply. So he basically rapes her. And then after he raped her, it says he hated her. Why is that story in the Bible? It's there to show that emotional love is not really love. It's purely emotion. True love is always in line with the Word of God and biblical law. Anything that is wrong in God's sight grieves a heart that is full of love, not merely because the wrong hurts the one to whom it is done, but especially because it is God is displeased with the wrong and must punish the wrongdoer. Love without law is antinomian and harmful, no matter how good you feel. That's why the divorce rate is incredibly high, because marriages today are based on romance and emotional love. And, and you know, the romance and emotional love will be there, but you've got to obey the law first. You don't base things on feelings. Feelings go up and down. Jay Adams is excellent on this. If you don't have the emotions, obey Scripture. The emotions will come, and they'll be good, and they'll be strong. When secular humanists argue for the goodness, integrity, and love of fornication or homosexuality or adulterous acts, they explicitly reject true love and embrace unrighteousness, rebellion against God, and the judgment that must attend such acts. Unrighteousness prevails and is exalted because truth is denied and the heart rejoices in that which is wicked. 
Love can never be indifferent to divine truth of the moral law. When truth, justice, and biblical morality prevails, love rejoices. So if the feelings aren't there, you know, love your wife. Treat her biblically. Treat her wonderfully. The emotions will follow. Be patient. The modern secular humanistic concept of love is based on how a person feels emotionally or thinks subjectively. If that subjective way of thinking and feeling is no longer there or is weak, the marriage bond shall, should be easily and legally dissolved. That's where no-fault divorce comes from. Yeah, you don't like your wife anymore, you don't like your husband anymore, get a divorce. No fault. In the old days, you had to prove a biblical, you know, originally you had to prove a biblical reason, and then you had to prove at least a good reason for divorce. Nowadays, it's called no-fault divorce. Why do you want to get divorced? It doesn't even matter why you want to get divorced. People, society doesn't care. This antinomian concept of love is behind no fault, easy divorce, and the acceptance of homosexuality. Why is homosexuality viewed as good and moral today? Oh, they love each other, it must be good. No, no, no. <laughs> that doesn't make something good. It has to be in accordance with biblical law. They have emotions that are illicit, wrong, they're sinful lusts. They are not good. Gay is not good. Bestiality is not good. Dressing up as a woman and cutting off your stuff is not good. It's wicked. That is the idea that my subjective feelings and desires are a certain way, that it must be good, moral, and lawful. Moreover, all society, including Bible-believing Christians, must be forced to accept my subjective feelings as valid, lawful, and good. So on the one hand, we're told we must be considerate and tolerant of other views. Then, once these views become popular and accepted by the secular humanistic elite, we're told that our views are evil and we need to be forced to bow down to these views, which is idolatry. We can never compromise biblical ethics without spitting in the face of God who gave us those biblical ethics. The destruction of the Christian concept of the family by the secular humanistic state is a prerequisite to setting up a secular humanistic state of social order. And one of the things we're going to learn in these studies, the Bible, uh, the family is the foundation of a good social order. It's the foundation of society, is the family. It's the most basic institution. Now the church is necessary because of sin and everything has to be done through Christ now. And the, the, the church is the one who has the keys of the kingdom and preaches the gospel and teaches the biblical law. But the church doesn't own property and develop economies and agriculture. That's the, the family. We'll look at that later. Instead of the biblical view of love, which is based on unchanging objective truth and an objective transcendent moral standard that protects husband, wives, and children from unlawful subjective feelings and lusts, the secular humanist offers ethical anarchy and degradation. And you say, oh, well, it's terrible. In the old days, there were people who stayed married for the sake of the children and they didn't want to be married. And it that old way of thinking, now Jay Adams says, if you treat your wife lawfully, or the, the wife obeys her husband, the, the, the feelings will come, and I agree with that. But, 
they were preserving the foundation of a civil society, a godly society, by staying married, even if the feelings are not always there. In the name of love, women and children are abandoned like an old car for a newer, younger model. Biblical law protects the family and does not tolerate fornication, homosexuality, or adultery, for these activities destroy families. The law of God is not arbitrary, it's wisdom. It, you know, you, we apply it, it's wisdom. But the laws of secular humanists legalize immorality, perversion, and the lifestyle of selfish, anarchistic individuals. I'm going to do what I want to do. I can get a wife that's 30 years younger than me, because I have a lot of money. To hell with my family. That's the way people think today. And it's, it, it's extremely wicked and selfish. Human autonomy and a radical moral relativism is more important in their worldview than the biblical family unit. The biblical family is sacrificed on the altar of hedonism and self-worship or idolatry. And that's where we are today. That's why I'm contrasting the biblical view with the view that's popular today. Another aspect of marriage rejected by secular humanists is the biblical teaching that the wife was created for her husband and must submit to him in the Lord. <coughs> Such teaching is anathema to the modern feminist who rejects the creation account and sees no difference in the roles of men and women. And this whole transgendered thing, that we're, the insanity we see today, really grows out of radical feminism. And relativism. It's this idea that men, there is no difference between men and women. Well, once you say that, which is obviously false, you know, there are no women. Women could try out for the NFL. Women could try out for men's tennis. Women could try out for men's soccer. And you know why they're not going to be there? Because the men are way stronger. It's just reality. They must not only reject scripture, but also the obvious differences in the natures of men and women. The secular humanist position is that all differences in roles are a product of social evolution and conditioning. And they also assume that any differences in roles automatically imply positions of superiority and inferiority. Recently, the, the American women's soccer team went over, I think it was England, and they played uh, a group of high school, I think it was high school, males. <laughs> These are high school. Now, my brother played, I played soccer in high school, Catholic, the Cat, Roman Catholic League, which is way better than the public league, and my brother was really good. His, his, he was on a championship team. And um, this high school, these high school students, uh, they beat the American professional women. It was like 10 to nothing or something ridiculous. It was embarrassing. They're just high school students. College soccer players could wipe out those guys, and professional guys could wipe them out even more. And then, of course, uh, any man in, in tennis who's 600 and below could beat, could beat Serena Williams. She could, they could beat the best women tennis player in the world. There are differences between men and women. Consequently. Oh, they also assume 
that any differences in roles automatically imply positions of superiority and inferiority. Consequently, modern feminism not only demeans the biblical role of women as wives, managers of the home, 1 Timothy 5.14, and rearers, along with their husbands of the children, but also turns men and women against each other, like it's a contest. The Bible never teaches that women are lesser or inferior to men. Never teaches that. That's an assumption of secular humanists. It teaches that they have different complementary functions in the task of dominion. Even though their roles are different, they need each other to perform their tasks for there to be harmony and success in the home and on planet Earth. Have you ever been in a playground and uh, a child is hurt, you know, five-year-old, three-year-old, seven-year-old? Who do they always run to? Mommy. Who do children go to when they need to be breastfed? They don't go to daddy. They go to mommy. The biblical housewife who lives in obedience to Christ should have far more status and respect than a woman who places her children in daycare so she can pursue a career outside the home. Now, I understand there's women that have been abandoned by their husbands and they're in poverty and they have to work. They don't have any choice. In the biblical worldview, the extended family would kick in and help her out so she wouldn't have to work. But the state, modern statism, has basically destroyed the extended family. People used Extended families were the welfare center before the state was, and the church was secondarily a welfare center. The key to understanding biblical submission and leadership in the home is to see that both must be conducted in the fear of God under the authority of Christ. The husband must submit to Christ and love his wife as Jesus loved his church. That's a tall order. It's pretty difficult. That is in a sacrificial and serving manner that places her welfare above his. She's not a slave. This is not Islam. She's not cattle. She's not there to mop the floor and just do dishes. What he requires of his wife is always conditioned by the word of God. Therefore, he is not a dictator or a tyrant, but a compassionate servant leader. When men stopped acting like Christian men, who imitate Christ, and women attempt to be like pagan men, they both have abandoned the purpose of marriage and cannot carry out a godly form of dominion. So that's important. The secular humanistic position that A, views marriage as a chance product of social evolution, B, regards love as completely disconnected to biblical law, and C, rejects the creational ordained differences between husbands and wives, leads to a social and sexual revolution. What, if, what has happened to women? It's not just that they've become more like men, they've become like pagan men. They get to go out and get drunk. They get to go out and fornicate. They get to commit adultery. They get to live like sluts and whores. That's not good for society, folks. It's not. It's not good for marriage. And, of course, the men shirk their responsibility and let their wives call the shots. Under this worldview, the family ceases to be a crucial agent, together with the Christian church, of godly dominion and a separate God-ordained covenantal body with its own privileges and responsibilities. The point of marriage is now primarily romantic 
and the duties of the family to other family members, health, education, welfare, and so forth, are handed over to the state. Okay, the idea that people get, what happens today? Well, people are old. Get them in an old folks' home that's subsidized by the state. So they all sit around watching TV all day, and they're all totally lonely, and they die of loneliness. That's the modern view. The old view, the oldest son was responsible to take care of his aged mother or parents. Usually the, the, the mother lives longer. Who's going to be happier? Somebody around children? Somebody who's willing to help around the house? Is she going to be happier than being in an old folks home with a bunch of strangers uh, run by uh, women uh, who are on minimum wage, who don't care one whit about them? So they sit around and watch TV and rot? You see, the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Statism is cruel. It's evil. It's wicked. The secular humanistic doctrine of the family is that in the course of evolution, the family had an important role to play in the village. But with the rise and establishment of the modern savior, all-competent state, the family exists to serve this state, and it is the state's job to assume to, assume to itself the roles that used to belong to the family. And you see the Democrats show their hand on this. Oh, the education of the children, that's not, that's not, the parents have nothing to do with that. That's the state's job. The guy in Virginia admitted this. Biden admitted this. That's not the parents' responsibility. That's the state's responsibility. Joseph Stalin and Karl Marx would be proud. That's totally demonic. The modern humanistic state defines the family, determines the ethics for family living, and seeks total control over children for the sake of the future power of the savior state. We'll stop there and take a break. Um, and when we come back, we'll look at the Dominion Mandate. We're going through the Genesis account because it really lays the groundwork for everything. And I'll, I'll pull in Old Testament law and I'll pull in New Testament epistles and so forth. We'll come back and look at the Dominion Mandate. The biblical way is the only true way. The biblical way is the only way to have real peace. The biblical way is the only way to have real joy. These women, these poor women, and I, you know, I've worked jobs, I've, I've been around these women, who sacrifice having children for the sake of their career, and then they get to their 40s and they're all, oh boy, I, I better try to have one, and they can't. Or these women who uh, have children, and they don't raise them. They put them in daycare. They don't really raise their own children. They're raised by minimum wage workers. And they're pretty miserable. I've been around them. Because they're taught this by society. The children are for the state. I'm supposed to live for self, for personal peace and affluence, to satisfy myself. And it's, it's contrary to human nature. Women are the most satisfied and happy when they raise children. That's the truth. And even these radical feminists, it's, it's quite apparent in looking at them when they get older and they don't have a family. But we'll come back, we'll look at the Dominion Mandate, and I hope this is very helpful. This is something that we all need to learn. I know this is a review for many of you. Um, I taught on this probably 25 years ago. But, uh, but I hope we'll find this helpful. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. Oh, we thank you for husbands and wives. We thank you for godly wives. They're such a blessing. We could not get by without them. We thank you for that you've instituted the family. What a 
act of kindness on your part so that we could be we could be mutually helpful and happy and content with the way you've created things your way is the only way it's the best way so we ingrain these truths into our mind lord help us to apply it for the sake of your kingdom for the sake of christ and his kingdom in jesus name amen